The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. I will continue tonight in our series of satsangs. I'll continue with the commentaries to a fundamental yoga text, one of the most encyclopedic of the yoga texts written in the tradition of India, the Geranda Samhita. This text is part of a series of three texts, or four, three and a half, together with Hatha Yoga Pradipika and Shiva Samhita. And these are the texts which are the spine of Hatha Yoga. Ninety-something percent of what is done today in the world as yoga, <coughs> which is mainly Hatha Yoga, is actually outlined not by the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, not by the Bhagavad Gita or other spiritual texts of, texts of India, but it is actually outlined mainly by these three texts, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the Shiva Samhita and the Geranda Samhita. If time will allow, I am going to make a commentary on each and every one of them. But until that time, I started with the latest of these texts, the one produced in the end of the 18th century in the medieval yogic environment of India, the Geranda Samhita, which is a text which is very, very encyclopedic. Uh, going through such a text, as you are going to see no doubt even today a little bit, is sometimes tedious because these are just descriptive texts. Simply, you know, they don't aim to teach yoga, they aim to memorize yoga. And uh, therefore, it's like an encyclopedia of yoga techniques, each and every one of them described very briefly and therefore not completely. And um, it's like, okay, we're just going here to go through a whole array of yoga techniques, asanas, kriyas, mudras, bandhas, pranayamas, and all that. What's the purpose of that? The purpose of that is, first of all, to connect to the tradition, to see what Hatha Yoga used to be 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. And it is also to understand the way of thinking of the people that created yoga, what kind of people were the Hatha Yogis of 200 years ago and more, and to connect a little bit with the spirit of yoga. So the teaching of the techniques themselves is secondary because most of these yoga techniques are taught in Agama anyway, in detail and with all the practical additions which need to be there. That's not really the purpose to just show a lot of techniques. The purpose is to get impregnated by the spirit of these ancient yogis to see what kinds of people they were. And when you read some of the things which they say, it's like, whoa, you know. You'll never encounter any of this stuff in some modern yoga books. Yoga books written after the 1960s and 70s, they look like a ridiculous caricature when you compare them with uh, the uh, Geranda Samhita or other similar texts. So this is very important to see the scope, the kind of mind, the broad-mindedness which these people had, that is really important. So this being said, I'm continuing. I'm in the chapter 5, which is the last of the big chapters. 
the chapters number six and seven are relatively short. And actually, if I manage to do everything I intend to do tonight, it may be that this is the last but one lecture of the Geranda Samhita satsang on the theme of Geranda Samhita. And um, we are, as I said, about three quarters more even through the fifth chapter, which is the second longest chapter of this treatise. It's about 96 shlokas. The, some Sanskrit texts are written in shlokas, which means two-line versets, versets or little strophes called in Sanskrit shlokas. And um, therefore, um, we are now, we are starting today with the shloka number 78 out of 96. So most probably tonight we'll get over the pranayama chapter and we're going to move into the sixth chapter, which is relatively short, about 20 or 22 shlokas, same as the number seven. Geranda has composed his text um, in a certain order, like the first chapter is about kriyas, purifications, then he starts with asanas, then he starts with other and other things. In the chapter number five, he reaches to pranayama, so he goes higher and higher. The chapter number six will be called dhyana, about meditation, and the chapter number seven will be referring to the state of samadhi. And thus, the text is going from easy to more difficult, from beginner techniques to more advanced techniques. And it's interesting that Geranda has put the pranayama chapter pretty late in the book. It's just before dhyana and samadhi. It's the last of the physical practices. And he has used more than one third of this chapter about precautions, like how to eat, where, in which season to do and not to do, place, time, diet, and other conditions which are very important for pranayama. As I said in a previous refreshing of the memory about this satsang, about this topic, Garanda thinks that pranayama is some strong explosive and it should be handled with care. The potential of it is much bigger. Today, people are capable of describing books with 600 asanas because they think it's all about gymnastics and limbs and stretching. And when it comes to pranayama, there are very few books written on pranayama. And those few books are usually dead boring. And to fill up the pages of a 200 book, they start bringing up things like the anatomy of the respiratory system, describing to you the function of the pulmonary alveoli and so on, which do not exist in texts about pranayama. In texts about pranayama, pranayama is really strong and important but it is very much not an anatomical and physiological thing because with pranayama you are crossing already that bridge into the subtle body. You are working with prana, you are working with energies. The same thing you are going to see about the last pranayamas. We are dealing now with the last three of the pranayama technologies that he describes in this book, in this chapter, and uh, they already have become quite spiritual. The first pranayamas were some of them for healing, purification. The last ones, they don't have much physiological effects. They point at the spiritual effects. 
let's see them the next one so last time we have concluded with uh, Shitali Pranayama and with uh, Kevala a form of Kevala Kumbhaka and now he's starting with what he calls here Brahmari Pranayama Brahmari is a funny Sanskrit name it's the name of a bumblebee and it's supposed that because this during this pranayama sometimes a bumblebee sound is made a little bit like when people are snoring and they are breathing from the back of their neck so breathing with a sound a little bit like the notorious Darth Vader thing in the Star Wars uh, a breath with sound but funnily enough although it's called the bumblebee pranayama uh, Geranda is very tricky and he is not really mentioning it because either you infer it by reading it or you got it from your teacher. So funnily enough, although this is a strange feature of this pranayama, this sound, this sonorous inhale, he's actually not going to make too much fuss about it in the text. He's going to mention other things. He says, at midnight, that's strange, at midnight, because most yogis were very diurnal persons, seldom they did some practices at midnight, but here he conditions it on the silence. He says, at midnight, the yogin must go in a place where there are no sounds, even those produced by insects. If we stop now for a second. There are a lot of sounds produced by insects. Where will you find a place where there are no sounds produced by insects, even by insects? At midnight, when everybody sleeps, that means simply go in a place which is really, really silent. There, in this place, late in the night, quiet, he should perform puraka inhalation and kumbhaka retention, closing the ears by the hands. There are various alternatives of this story. What does it mean to close, to do a pranayama, or you close your ears by the hands? Some yogis even have mudras like this. They simply plug the fingers in their ears, like in a very visible, in a very obvious way. It's not really necessary, especially if you want to do it for long term, because holding your hands like this for two hours of pranayama, on and off, it's going to produce a great tension and pain in your shoulders and arms. That's not the purpose of it. So, of course, many yogis have replaced this either with more simple positions, pressing the uh, closing of the ear, pressing the orifice of the ear, or some of them would even use ear plugs of different forms and types. So here, it basically says in a silent place, at midnight, inhale, hold your breath, and while you hold your breath, close your ears. I'm going to say it from the very beginning, so what follows then is more clear. In this pranayama, he forgot to say that when you inhale, you do, you do a snoring, humming sound in the back of your throat. But by plugging, by holding the breath and plugging the ears one way or another, what will result will be the famous ringing of the ears or tinnitus. There will be the onset of some internal sounds, which in Laya Yoga we teach in the first level of Agama, 
under the generic name of nadas, the inner sounds, the inaudible sounds, which you can hear only in your head, but they are not physically produced by anything. <coughs> it's the purpose of this pranayama to make a mixture between the nada yoga, the laya yoga, and pranayama. So he says you inhale, hold your breath, close your ears one way or another, and the shloka 79 says he will then hear various internal sounds, and the text uses the Sanskrit word nada when referring to these internal sounds, and he says into his right ear. First, these sounds will resemble those of crickets and then of a flute. I often commented in lectures this element that the fact that the sound is heard first in the right ear is a mystery unexplained by any physiological thing now. Theoretically, this sound has nothing to do with the ears, but it might have something to do with the brain hemispheres. So if it's a phenomenon which appears first mostly in the left brain hemisphere, you might have the inner impression that you hear it in the right ear, in the opposite ear. I can confirm it because first time when I did Laya Yoga Nada audition in my life, first time when I started hearing these sounds were indeed in the right ear. I have heard approximately 5% or maybe even 10% of the time that for some people it didn't work that way and they heard the sounds nowhere, everywhere in the left ear as opposed to the right one or whatever else. That's why I cannot take it as an absolute gospel thing that it has to be in the right ear. But Geranda, according to his experience, that's what he learned from his teachers. This is what he experienced. That's probably something which he saw with his pupils. And then he teaches that, that it will come most probably into the right ear. I'm not really going to stop now and resume the whole technique of subtle sounds, what the subtle sounds are, how do they, how are they heard, how they differ from tinnitus or pathological ringing of the ears due to medical problems or due to damage of the internal ear or of the brain and so on and so forth. These subjects are approached in the very first level of Agama teachings in the day number 21 when we teach the Laya Yoga initiation and that's why it's not necessary to bring it up again. So just uh, take it in a simple way then that he simply says if you hold your breath and plug your ears you are going to hear like a ringing sound which is the nadas there's not because of a defect and the first in the in beginning the sounds will remember with crickets and a flute they generally will be high-pitched sounds. We hear some crickets right now. So the sounds are like high-pitched a little bit. And so would be a flute as compared with a big gong or a drum or something like this. This text is very interesting. It's one of the two major Hatha Yoga texts which speaks about this inner audition and confirms the Laya Yoga technology that we use in Agama. And uh, it's very interesting that here, they, although he goes pretty quickly about it, he nevertheless mentions some very important things which are otherwise not mentioned in the literature. Here, what I'm saying is actually mentioned in the papers of Agama 
the first level intensive papers about Laya Yoga. There is an extract about the different qualities of these inner sounds that they can sound like this, 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 and that. That is coming, among others, from Geranda Samhita. And to confirm it, Geranda continues in the Shloka 80. He says, in the beginning, the sounds will probably sound like some high pitch sound, cricket, flute. And then he continues and sen- says, then the sounds may mutate depending on a lot of factors, the vibration of your energy, the concentration of your mind, the astrological moment, the mood you are into, and a lot of other things, plus stages of your practice. And he says, then these sounds will not resemble crickets and flutes, but then like thunder, then like drums, some people use instead of drums, cymbals. As I said at some point, here there is a list of approximately 10 producing sounds, like instruments or others of India, and they have different names in different parts of India, and that's why even Sanskritologists cannot agree exactly if this is this drum or that drum, because there are approximately 10 types of drums in India, plus cymbals, plus gongs, plus a hundred other instruments, and that's why uh, here we are having, you have to take it with a pinch of salt, further Sanskritological research is required for this, and it's not really important for the practitioners, because the practitioners simply know that there is a sound which starts like a flute or a cricket, a high-pitched sound, which may then vary in various ways, but you just focus on it and you know the drill, and therefore the things will go on anyway for those who practice. It has only more like an academic curiosity, not to mention that Geranda is not the alpha and the omega of yoga. He is a human being, albeit a very in very well-informed yogi and human being, a very knowledgeable uh, yoga teacher, and that's why he has to also be taken with a pinch of salt. So just take it as an idea that then the sound might be like thunder, like drums or cymbals, like beetles. The word is used exactly, brahmari, that this is brahmari, pranayama, remember, but he makes a little parenthesis that you hear sounds, And he says, those sounds may sound like a bumblebee, like a large bee, like a sort of a beetle or some of these crickets which make sound in the daytime. Some some of the sound-producing beetles. And he continues with the list. Jingle bells, gongs, some people say cymbals. So which ones of them are the cymbals, the second or the first? What cymbals? Because there are many types of cymbals as well. Horns, trumpets military drums, veena, he means the rudra veena, the classical tantric instrument, and finally, large drums. So he goes through a whole array of instruments which basically say this sound may change in major ways, which doesn't change the nature of what it is, what it does to you, and how you work with it. Thus, he says in the shloka number 81, Various sounds are experienced by the daily practice of this pranayama. So as you do it, the sound may vary according to some internal rules which he doesn't know or he doesn't bother to announce and they are not important practically. And they lead finally, that's the end. Like you are going through sounds on and on, but they finally lead to the so-called unstruck nada or anahatanada, this is a very tricky word in Sanskrit because anahata 
is also the name of the heart chakra. And the heart chakra means unstruck, which means nothing can strike you. And in the name of the chakra, Anahata chakra means this is the chakra where you have the indestructible in you. That thing which cannot be struck, which is the Jivatman, which is your soul, which is immortal through the grace of God. And therefore, Anahata Chakra is called Anahata Chakra because they want to say, to call your attention that this is the chakra where there is some indestructible, untouchable, immutable, unharmable part of your structure of your being, which is the immortal soul of the human being. But then when we talk about Nada, it's a completely different story. They again use the name Anahata, but they do not refer to the chakra. They use the name Anahata because the sounds, according to the Indian rules of music, they are produced through percussion, either the bells of a piano or the drums or cymbals or pinching strings of a vena or whatever you do, there is a mechanical way of hitting something, hitting strings, hitting membranes, hitting something. And even with the air, when you blow air in a flute or in a trumpet, you, there, the air is struck by air. There is air blowing on the air and producing vibration and stationary waves in some tubes like which are the flutes or like the organ tubes in a church organ or something. So there the sound is still struck. It's a sound in which something strikes on something, like air on air. But then there are these inner sounds, like when you sit and meditate and suddenly it's coming inside your head and you're wondering where, what is rubbing against what? There's no, so these sounds are unstruck. So they are called anahata. And from this, the word anahata is used for two meanings which are not synonymous. But when people say anahata nada, some people automatically jump and say it's the anahata chakra nada. No, it's not the nada from the anahata chakra. It's the anada which is produced unstruck, which is a not a friction generated sound. It's not a mechanically generated sound. So the meaning is very different. And yet 90% of the people who write about yoga, whenever they hit on this one, they are so uninformed or they did not get initiated by a teacher and they did not do their own sadhana because they don't know. They keep saying this sound is coming from anahata, but actually you hear it in the right ear. What has that got to do with anahata? And the sound in yoga is related with Vishuddha chakra. So this sound can rather be related with Vishuddha, with Ajna, rather than with Anahata. It's an unfortunate thing that, or maybe they did it on purpose just to confuse everybody, that some yogis chose to use the name Anahata. Anyway, this is a consecrated name and we can't change it after a thousand years or more. And that's why the name remains, but it always has to be explained that it's one thing to talk about Anahata Chakra, and it's another thing to talk about anahata nada. <clears throat> and there is not a direct connection between those. And he says various sounds will be thus experienced, like a ladder of sounds. 
and they lead finally like the goal, the target, is the anahatanada, which expresses the ultimate resonance, the divine resonance. You can say that this nada is like a sonorous, audible expression of the divine, of the ultimate, of the supreme. Is the ultimate sonorous energy, and it represents as sound the ultimate reality, which is, of course, the higher consciousness. Vedantic yogis in India, instead of Nada, they sometimes call it Shabda Brahman. Brahman, which is the Vedantic name for God, expressed as Shabda, sound, the sonorous form of Brahman. Brahman, the sound. Brahman, as sound. Shabda Brahman, or Nada, Anahata Nada. But it is located energetically here in the crown chakra, not in Anahata as uh, the chakra in the chest. So he basically says, if you hold your breath and you hear sounds, and these sounds are going higher, 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 I could say if you do Laya Yoga and you do the same without holding your breath, so there are various approaches to this Nada technology, the sound becomes higher and higher and higher, more and more refined until it becomes Anahata Nada, which is a sonorous way, a mantric vibrational way of hearing God, of being in touch with the highest consciousness. And he concludes in the Shloka 82, so this is a pranayama with internal sound. It's, a, it's more down-to-earth than Laya Yoga, but it can be an idea for those of you who tried Laya Yoga for six weeks or more and you still don't hear the sound clearly, to maybe turn back to this idea, do pranayama, learn pranayama from Agama, inhale, hold your breath, plug your ears, and try to listen to the sounds in that condition and see it's more uh, possible, it's more intense. And in the Shloka 82, he concludes the description of this Brahmari, the bumblebee, where was the bumblebee? See, he didn't mention, because there is a secret that when you inhale, you just produce a sound, and this sound produces an energizing in the area of Ajna Chakra and the head, and this is enhancing the apparition of the inner sounds, and it purifies the channels of energy in the area of the head, and it makes the audition of the sounds more powerful. So it's not coincidental, it's not just inhaling and holding your breath. There's more, but funnily enough, even Geranda, he calls it the bumblebee, and even if you didn't do it for 10 years, when you will, somebody will read it to you, I'll say, oh, the bumblebee, and I remember our teacher told us that there was this thing, like you'll always remember, even if one of the key details is not written in the paper, perhaps because of the sleight of hand, because of the haste, perhaps simply because the author is tricky and doesn't want to put everything on paper. So then he explains a very interesting thing. He says this sublime resonance, this nada, which expresses the ultimate resonance, this sublime resonance, nada, engenders an internal light. He means a subtle light. Here, um, Geranda makes a little bit of a salad because he suddenly jumps from sound to light, which means he knows, or it's his case, that actually many people are rather visual 
rather than auditory. Neurolinguistic programming research in the last 30 years claims that more people are visual than auditory as percentage of the population. And therefore, uh, this technique, if you just take it as sound, it's a technique made for musicians, for people with a musical ear, for people who live in their auditory sense, for people who are the auditory technology. But maybe Geranda himself was not auditory. And then he says, yeah, yeah, you go auditory, auditory. And when it reaches in Sahasrara, it also produces light. Because God can be expressed as Shabda Brahman or Nada, a sound. But God can also be expressed as Prakasha or the divine light, the uncreated light, Jyoti, the light of the light. But that's for visual people. Visual people will see God and auditory people would hear God. Everybody relates through their dominant gateway in their brain and that's why there are at least three ways of relating with your own spirituality. And thus here Geranda shifts the track, changes the track in a funny way and he says he goes 90% of the way with nada and then when he's almost to the end he says this sublime resonance engendered an internal subtle light which pervades the mind or manas. If you are going to read a similar description in Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the author of Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which was Svatmarama, another great yogi, much before Geranda, Svatmarama is not visual or he understands that the technique has to stay purely auditory. And he, what he says is this sound produces a hypnotic effect which makes your mind dissolve as a reindeer is hypnotized by a flute song and forgets about its own, its own safety. Geranda doesn't use that because his way of doing it, he says when you have this vibration in the crown chakra because of nada, this engenders, produces an internal light which is prakasha and this light pervades the mind. The mind of Geranda melts into light, while the mind of Svatmarama melts into sound. There's absolutely no difference. The difference is not in the technology or in the process. The difference is, is in the character, personality, and typology of Geranda and Svatmarama. They are two different human beings, and they react in two slightly different ways. So Svat, uh, Geranda turns it to light. He says you go into light and the light pervades your mind. And then he continues. The mind must dissolve. He uses a word vilaya, like laya, vilaya, like shuddha, vishuddha. Vilaya means to melt completely. The mind must dissolve vilaya into that light, Svatmarama will say the mind must dissolve into that sound. And thus, the mind, when it dissolves because of this Sahasrara, thus the mind reaches the abode of Vishnu. The word, the text uses actually not the literally the name of Vishnu. It uses an expression which is very well known in the Vaishnava circles of India, which is called Paramapada. And it, it means the place where Vishnu put his feet. You can see the, foot, the footsteps of Buddha. 
and people worship the footholds of the footprints of Buddha, and you touch your forehead on the for, on the um, footsteps of Buddha. The feet of Buddha are as spiritual as your Ajna Chakra. So it's like Buddha is placed from here up. You know, you are lower than Buddha. So that's why they always insist that Buddha statues should be placed higher and all that. The same thing is done with the gurus. People touch the feet of the guru and very often they touch the feet of the guru and then they touch their heart or touch their head or both. Like this spiritual influence comes there. When I took the sannyasa diksha, my guru gave me the tilak mark, the blessing, and I had to give it back to him. And when I gave it back to him, he made me give it onto his big toe. Like his big toe was the equivalent of my third eye. That's the message. So there is always the expression at the feet of the guru. This is an Indian way of expressing uh, respect. And we're touching the footprints of uh, Vishnu, the lotus feet of Vishnu and the lotus feet of my guru and so on. Even a great Western guru like Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was very wealthy and popular, in his books, when he made the consecration, he said to the lotus feet of my guru, Swami Maheshwarananda Sarasvati, at whose feet I saw the light. This is a typical Indian. So for Vishnu, in the Vaishnava environments, it's like you see the footsteps. The, the support, the footprints of Vishnu, which are placed on your crown. It's like Vishnu is standing on the crown of your head and his feet are as spiritual as your crown chakra. It's a way of expressing adoration and worship. And that's why it is it's always talk about Paramapada, the supreme footstools, the supreme foot support, and which is in Sahasrara. But by using the words Paramapada, this is a typical Vaishnava. In India, everybody would know that you talk like a Vaishnava because in the Shaiva environments of India, they don't use this metaphor with the footprints of Shiva and so on. There are other elements about Shiva. Not because it wouldn't be equivalent, but simply in the tradition it was used more by the Vaishnava people. So that's why it says your mind dissolves in the light slash sound and your mind reaches the abode of Vishnu. It reaches Sahasrara, it reaches Paramapada, it reaches the divine sphere. When you transcend your mind, you go to Vishnu or to Shiva or whatever the name of your spiritual ideal is, the kingdom of heaven, the nirvana, the transcendence, that thing which transcends the mind. So he says, with sound, with light, the mind melts, transcends, dissolves completely, and then it reaches thus, like, like you would vaporize water, and the water becomes clouds and vapor, and it lifts up, it simply rises, it goes higher. And he concludes then, what a pranayama, a pranayama where you hear sounds and light and go to the abode of Vishnu, you hold your breath not for increasing your anahata. You hold your breath not for sending energy in some of your channels. You hold your breath to just produce a sound, a light which goes in Sahasrara and dissolves into 
the kingdom of God. And he concludes by a semi-sentence, a one-liner in his shloka, which says the last line in shloka 82, where he says, by perfection in this brahmari, one attains success in samadhi. So here is a pranayama technique, which is meant for generating nada, <coughs> prakasha, and samadhi, reaching to sahasrara. So as you can see, Pranayama can be many things, including very spiritual. The next one takes just one shloka, and this is the last but one. The last one will take the rest of the 12 shlokas of the text, and it's called Murcha Pranayama, which is a very alarming and weird word in Sanskrit, because Murcha means to faint. This is like the blackout Pranayama. And those of you who did the second level of Agama, might even think that it relates in some way to Agnisara Dhauti, right? Because you, most of you who went through Agama's environment, you have seen people blacking out during Pranayama and others. And it is something a little bit like that, but it uses another trick. It doesn't use the trick used in Agnisara Dhauti, which is not really a Pranayama. It's a Simai Pranayama. It's a Dhauti, technically speaking. Here is the Murcha Pranam, how to make yourself faint by breathing. Having performed a comfortable kumbhaka, so he means comfortable, which means in the Surya Vedana, which I read to you last time, he said a crazy thing. He said, hold your breath until sweat oozes from under your nails. That's like go to the brink of death, you know. Here he says very clearly, <coughs> Having performed a comfortable kumbhaka. Kumbhaka means the retention of the breath in pranayama. It's the stage where you hold your breath. So sometimes he uses the word kumbhaka or so on, equivalent to pranayama, because if you do kumbhaka, you do pranayama, basically. So he says, Having performed a comfortable kumbhaka, retention of the breath, it's a full retention of the breath, let one fix the mind inside between the eyebrows, and detach from all other objects of senses. <coughs> so, several conditions. He says, focus your attention, your mind, he says, inside between the eyebrows. That's a concentration which is rare in yoga, because it doesn't mean focus on Ajna Chakra, where the chakra is. It says focus on a point of energy inside, which is done in other branches of yoga, like in Taraka Yoga and others. So, we can confirm that Geranda is not wrong because there are other technologies of yoga which do the same and which we teach. So he says, fix the mind inside between the eyebrows and detach from all other objects of senses, which means focus, 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 like try to focus really well and you are holding your breath, don't forget until there occurs something like a mental swoon. So he claims if you obey to all the conditions, there will be something like if you go in Ajna Chakra, suddenly there is like a self-hypnosis. It's like falling asleep. It's like blacking out. And it's an association between holding the breath and focusing in Ajna and focusing inside in a point of energy, inside the skull in Ajna and focusing forgetting all the objects of senses, until there occurs something like a mental swoon and great happiness. 
He says in the moment when you lose your mind like this, which is not a biological fainting, it's more like a mental blackout, you also are going to feel great happiness, a joy. Your brain reacts in a way which feels very pleasant. And indeed, around this jada, unconscious things in the mind, sometimes there is a very pleasurable thing occurring, which is difficult to explain, but of course, it is explained today by neuroscience as the production of melatonin, serotonin, dopamine, endorphins, and others in the brain. So it's a very orgasmic chemistry of the brain around that point. And he says, so hold your breath, focus in ajna, eliminate all other objects of senses, and keep it on until you get almost like blacking out, like swooning. And you have a great happiness, which is a very good symptom to check it, if it's the right thing. And he concludes by saying, his mind, if you can bring your mind to this point of blacking out, his mind unites then with Atman, it's the same thing. Your Ajna goes to Sahasrara, your mind unites with Atman, Atman is beyond the mind, the mind is the mind, so the mind surpasses itself because it faints like, it's like the mind dies, then it can go beyond. So it unites then with Atman, and yogic bliss is achieved truly and steadily. This murcha pranayama is not completely well explained, because, for example, it involves in practice that one tilts the head on the back and does more, like focuses the eyes and so on. So not all the details of this practice are given here, but this is the fainting pranayama, like do, breathe, do something, and then you are getting to a break point, and in that break point there starts being ecstasy, and the mind surpasses itself, and it melts into the crown in Atman, and then yogic bliss, he says, he uses the word yoga ananda, yogananda, the ananda of yoga, the bliss of yoga, is achieved truly and steadily, like it lasts. It's not just a gimmick, it's not just a freaky phenomenon exploited for some flashy purpose. It's actually achieved steadily and it goes, it's a real thing. Short description of this technique and with this we move to 84 which starts describing a process which he calls it here Kevali, Kevala Kumbhaka or Kevali Kumbhaka. In Sanskrit, sometimes the last letter can be A or E. If it's A, the word is masculine, and if it's E, it's feminine. So Kevali is the feminine form of Kevala, and it makes no big difference uh, from the standpoint of how you call a technique. You could call a technique by just feminizing it, and you know you could uh, even a chakra. You know you could call it Muladhara or Muladhari and so on. You could call Udiana or Udiani, and so on, and Kevala or Kevali. Kevala Kumbhaka is basically a radical process, which again it's spiritual. These last three ones are typically spiritual, and this is a process by which you hold your breath for a long time, and you start entering into altered states of consciousness. To explain why that is happening, he is actually going to give us another parenthesis, like before, he was giving us a parenthesis about the values, the five main values, 
and the five secondary values. Now he's going to give us another theory. But first he says, <clears throat> so before he starts Kevali, he starts with a parenthesis. He starts with an introduction. He says, the breath of every person, so it's not about yoga, it's the normal thing. The breath of every person goes out with the sound hum and comes in again with the sound sah. Thus, one repeats 21,600 times every day and night incessantly this spontaneous japa. So it's called spontaneous japa like it's a non-japa because you are not doing japa and that's why it's called ajapa. To make it clear, they use a paradoxical union of words in Sanskrit, the ajapa-japa. The japa which is a non-japa. The japa which is not really done as a japa, but it happens anyway because you breathe, so it is like a japa. So he says, in this way, 21,600 times, the spontaneous japa of the name of Gayatri. Lots of things in this little shloka, which don't refer directly to this practice, indirectly yes, and they refer to a whole thing in the yoga tradition. First of all, the story. As you breathe, that's the sign of prana. Like a Buddhist master said, breathe, you are alive. That's why you focus on the breath in vipassana and other technologies in Buddhism and not only in Buddhism. You focus on the breath because the breath, you know, you say, God put in me Holy Spirit. What's the most clear evidence that I'm alive and I have Holy Spirit? The breath. Besides the breath, it's difficult to see much, like you don't see the functioning of your brain and many other things. But the breath is a very clear factor. And that's why uh, here we're having this, that the yogis being very simple people living in the nature, observing the body and the nature, they immediately have said very much is about the breath. And then they said if the breath is calm, it goes about once every four seconds. Like you inhale two seconds, you exhale two seconds in a repose state. And therefore you are breathing 15 times per minute. 15 times per minute, it means that you are breathing 900 times per hour. And if you multiply that with 24, it gives 21,600. So you are breathing 21,600 times per day. And every time when you breathe, your inhale and exhale are movements of prana. Prana coming in, prana coming out. In yoga, if you want to go millimetrically scrupulous, those are the movements of two values, prana as the energy comes in and apana as the breath comes out. So you have like a metronome, you have like a biological clock in you, which goes prana two seconds, apana two seconds, prana two seconds, apana two seconds, prana two seconds, apana two seconds. And it goes on whatever you do, even when you sleep, it goes on. It doesn't even require awareness. It is a mechanism which is programmed by the subconscious mind and it goes on automatically. And thus, what I'm saying here is this. There is a theory which associates with this movement of energy sounds. I suppose that these were invented by auditory yogis who love the mantras and they needed to have a mantra for everything. The funny thing is, that these mantras, they don't really matter in detail what they are. These mantras actually matter that they are. Like you can say A and Ha, or A 
and oh, but of course the yogis who hurt themselves breathing, especially if somebody was suffering from emphysema or asthma or something, and you could hear them breathing, or they tried to put a sound like this person sounds like, you would hear an H, right? So it was easy from here to go to ha, hum. And therefore one sound was nicknamed ha or hum, and the other sound was a whistling sound, and the most discrete whistling vowel consonant of Sanskrit was sa, and the H should be there, so it became sa. So it became ha, sa, ha, sa. But if you want to make them into mantras, you have to put the one of the capital vowels in those. So ha became associated with M, with Bindu, and became hum. And sa became associated with Visarga, and thus it became sa. Hum, sa, hum, sa, hum, sa. Here starts the madness. Some yogis forgot which one is for inhale and exhale. And that's why half of India does it one way. And the other half of India does it the other one. And everybody is pointing fingers at the others. You didn't get it right. It's not hum for inhaling and sa for exhaling. It's hum for exhaling and sa. It's completely unimportant, really. Because you keep repeating hum, sa, hum, sa, hum, sa forever. And it doesn't. There are some speculations in the Kashmiri Shaivism and some very high phoneme Sanskrit theories from the Tantric tradition of India, which could give credence more to one version. Like one of these versions is 51% probable, while the other one is 49%. So it could be that we can eventually come and say, make it so, because this one is the 51%. It's a slightly more than the other. Honestly, it does not work. I have tried to make hamsa and sa ham, so ham, whatever meditations, with both of them in both ways, this for inhale, that for exhale, the other way around, and always the result has been just the same. Like it doesn't really matter which is which. Don't focus on childish kindergarten things. If you get to a teacher and the teacher says, no, Swami Vivekananda doesn't know what he's talking about, it's the other way around, you can just smile and say, okay. No, it's like, you're right, you know. It's completely useless to argue on this issue because this issue is anyway 50-50 in India. And here you have a simple example. Even the way Gyaranda uses it, that's not the way Kashmiri Shaivism uses it. Gyaranda says that the air goes out with the sound hum and it comes in with the sound sa. But in Sanskrit, a hum, it's more for inhaling and sa, H, the visarga, is an exhale of the soul, of the, of the breath, and therefore H goes with the exhale. So in Kashmiri Shaivism, they use hum for the inhale and sa for the exhale. Does this mean that one of them has got it completely wrong? Again and again, no. Don't focus on secondary things. And if you find a teacher who is absolutely compulsively obsessive, fanatic about that his version is right, please satisfy them. Say like them. Do like them. Ultimately, you don't stand to lose anything. It just goes equally. There is a Sanskritology of it, which that's why in Agama, when we teach the Tantric Vipassana, 
we say hum for the inhale, sa for the exhale, because that seems to my knowledge of yoga and Sanskritology to be the 51%, and this is how I have learned it from my teachers after all. But here is a classical yoga text which says just the other way around. So that's the first madness of it. Which one is associated with what? The second madness is that accidentally or not, in Sanskrit, the word hamsa, made of those two words, it actually means swan. It's the bird, the white beautiful bird, sometimes black as well, the white beautiful bird called the swan. And then if you keep on saying hamsa, hamsa, swan, 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 21,600 times in Sanskrit, is that just a complete accident or does it have a meaning? And then the hair splitters from India, and believe me, India is and has been full of hair splitters, people who spend more time writing commentaries than doing pranayama. So they are hair splitters ultimately. The world would have been a better place if they did more pranayama rather than writing books about pranayama. But they didn't have the perseverance and the aspiration. And then it's like in the laws of Murphy. Those who cannot do it teach others. Like the best people are not the teachers. The best people are those who sit and do it. So, therefore, um, you find this thing ever, the speculation is, what's the swan? And then they started coming up with <coughs> phantasmagoria, which is beautiful phantasmagoria, spiritual phantasmagoria, but nevertheless phantasmagoria. Hamsa, the swan, is a symbol of your immortal soul, which exactly like a swan goes in the water and then it sails for a hundred meters and when it gets to the other shore, it just makes like this and it's not wet because its feathers are greasy and they do not catch water. They don't get moist. And then so exactly like this, your soul called Hamsa, like a swan, gets in this body. It stays in it for a hundred years. And when it comes out of this body, it does like this and it keeps nothing. Like right now, some of you are... Scorpios, Tauruses, Geminis, Virgos, and you think that that's how you are. But your soul, in the next life, if, if now you are a Taurus, in your next life, your soul could be a Gemini. There's a huge difference between the temperament of a Taurus and the temperament of a Gemini. Who would you be if now experimentally somebody would take you from this astrological body and plant your soul in a Gemini body, if you are a Taurus right now? you'd think you've gone crazy because 99% of your temperament and personality will be completely different. You look at yourself and you'd say, this is not me. I used to be very settled and now I'm all over the place. Thus, your soul is neither Taurus nor Gemini. This is the wrong identification. And basically they say it's like a swan. It goes through each body and each body leaves no impression on it. Then the swan does like this, and your soul is free again, and it goes in other and other experiences, and so on. So it's a beautiful metaphor. It's like a fairy tale. It's like a nice metaphor. But it has nothing really to do, as far as Sanskritologists know, 
this hamsa, the word hamsa, has nothing to do with that. And I'm sure that if, if instead of a swan, it would have been a lizard, they would have said that exactly like the lizard jumps into the fire fearlessly and this, uh, your soul like a lizard, uh, you know, they would have found a metaphor. This metaphor happened to be the swan, hamsa. So then people say, oh, this is a way when you do hamsa, hamsa, you don't do just vipassana and you pay attention or anapana, you know, and you pay attention to your breath. You are actually thinking about your immortal soul, hamsa, because you are being saying hamsa, which means in slang, you are saying atman, 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 the, the self, the I, which of course a Buddhist teacher would consider preposterous because there is no self, the no self theory in Buddhism and all that. This shows just how the teachers and the lineages took some basic stuff and then they created, they embroidered the whole story on it. And we in yoga sometimes have to mercilessly cut off all these things and to look at the technology to see what the core of that was. All these stories with Hamsa, meditate on your soul as a swan, which goes from one life to the next. It, it's beautiful, but it's not the yoga of it. This is a, a sort of a guided meditation. And thus, that's another addition. That's another madness with this Hamsa. Here comes the third one. If it's Hamsa, 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 which came first, the chicken or the egg? Like it's hamsa or sa ham. And if it's sa ham, sa ham, Sanskritologists get scratched in their eardrum because you can never say sa ham, sa ham, sa ham, sa. The final visarga and the initial age, they mix by a rule called in Sanskrit grammar sandhi. They concatenate the two words in one and then you have to change the letters exactly like to adapt to each other. It's a sort of a joint between them. And according to the Sanskrit rule, a word ending in A-H with a word starting in H, they concatenate by transforming all of it into an O. Don't ask me why. Sanskritologists had a musical ear. It's like when speaking Sanskrit, it has to sound like a yambic meter. It has to sound like an antique poem. It has to sound with a certain sonority, exactly like in oratoric. It's like in poetry. It's like when you speak, it has to sound in a rhythmic and melodic way. And that's why they have thought a lot about these things. How do you mix words so that the final word sounds good? Bottom line is, saham have to be pronounced as soham. And then people say, no, it's the mantra. It's not the mantra, hamsa. It's the mantra, soham. Same, same, but different, of course. And this, this rabbit hole goes so much deeper because ham can be considered a shortening from aham, which is, of course, a bit preposterous because you don't inhale saying aham. You just inhale saying so it's hum, there is no ah. But for an enthusiastic Sanskritologist, then you could kind of stretch it, push the envelope a little bit, and then it's a hum. And why is that significant? 
because aham in Sanskrit means I, me, I. And then sa is a shortcoming from sat, which means that. And then I, that, I am that. And if you presume for a second that that refers to God or reality, then you've got here a sentence which is mutilated, crippled severely, which is aham sat, which means hamsa. I am that. These are people who didn't believe in mantras and they wanted magical formulas. They wanted prayers instead of mantras. You all know that the real mantras are onomatopoeic sounds, gibberish, which they don't mean anything. But people who don't know that, they want that when they say hamsa, hamsa, they should say swan, the swan, the swan, the swan, the swan, the swan, the swan. Because this gives them an emotional thing, because the swan is Atman. And thus they, when they say the swan, the swan, the swan, they build up some emotion. And if you say, Ahamsat, I'm that, I'm that, I'm that, I'm that, I'm that, I'm that, and that's what my breath tells me, that I'm that, these are all twists and turns and modifications and mutilations. And India is full of this. The original intention was not at all this. To, or with swans and I am that and so on. And then you put it soham, saha aham, that I am. Not I am that, that I am. You can make philosophy and split the hair for 25 years on this kind of thing. In practice they are useless and most of them are just a lateral thinking, deviation, collateral things. They are not on the main thread of practice. When you practice, that's not where you go. This is superficializing your practice. If you want to go deep, you have to go in the direction of what is written here for a difference. So basically, he says, your breath is pronouncing a mantra or can be associated with a bisyllabic mantra with two syllables, one for inhale, one for exhale. And you are repeating it 21,000 times. And it's like you are unconsciously repeating a mantra all day long. <coughs> 85. This hamsa, it's very smart. He speaks in a very smart way. He says, this hamsa thing must be associated mentally with the area of muladhara. He uses the word muladhara, literally. He doesn't go oblique. He goes straight. He says, this must be associated mentally with the area of muladhara, of the heart. He doesn't say anahata, chakra. He says hridaya, like in the area of the heart. Because all, if I said muladhara and the heart, everybody who did a year of yoga knows that I'm talking about the root chakra and the heart chakra. But he speaks in this confusing language so that only those who know, they can make the right connections. So he says... It is associated mentally with the area of muladhara, of the heart, and of the union of the two nostrils. The two nostrils seem to be separate here, and then the nose gets narrower here. So the union of the two nostrils is again brumadhiya, but he doesn't want to say brumadhiya. And brumadhiya means between the eyebrows, and therefore ajna chakra, the normal, the most often used syntax for ajna chakra. So he says this hamsa, the fact that you are breathing in and out, must be associated with the areas of muladhara, the heart, 
and the forehead, the union of the two nostrils. Thus, hamsa acts on three levels of the being. Like you can associate inhale, exhale with muladhara, with anahata, with ajna. And these are three different levels of this practice. You notice the inhale and exhale in muladhara, in anahata, and in ajna. In, uh, for example, in the hridaya practice, there is a practice where you inhale and exhale through the chest. Like you imagine that you got a hole in your heart chakra and you inhale and exhale through it. That is hamsa in the area of the heart. It's one of the ways of doing this meditation. And now he continues with his parenthesis. He doesn't tell us what is this kevali kumbaka, which once he told us that the human being breathes 21,600 times hamsa, hamsa, hamsa. And then he says that with this hamsa, if we can focus in muladhara, anahata, ajna. And now he starts with a slightly separate subject, like he adds some more, he builds some more on this parenthesis. He says the average body, visible result, visible result, he uses the name rupa, like the form, the visible form of karma. See, he, this is not related with what he wants to teach about Kevali Kumbhaka. He just wants to give a little bit of lateral thinking and a hint. He says, by the way of the body, why don't I put a little syntax here? You are the normal body, which is a visible result of the karma. Your body is the result of your karma. Your karma made you have the body which you have today. That's what the body is. The body is a materialization of the karma. So he says... The average body, which by the way is a visible result of the karma, measures 96 angulas. Angula would be perfect equivalent of the English word inch, only that the inch is the thumb or the index finger of the King Henry VIII, who bless him had fingers as thick as sausages, and that's why the, uh, the inch is 2.54 centimeters. I measured my own fingers, and although I'm a large guy, my fingers are two centimeters in size. So it must be that Henry VIII really had thick fingers. And in India, they probably were more skinny than I am, because an angula is slightly smaller than an inch, and even smaller than two centimeters, because 96 angulas is literally speaking by the science, if you measure the measure, is about 1 meter and 80 centimeters, 180 centimeters. 96 angulas equal 180 centimeters. This means that an angula is slightly smaller than 2 centimeters, almost 2 centimeters. So the best way for you to think about it, think about it as finger breadths, which is inches, but again, that is a measure with a specificity to it. So he says the average body visible result of karma measures 96 angulas. We're going to say most women are not 96 angulas. See, these are texts written by men for their male disciples. Especially in the 18th century, in Indian yoga, there were five men for one woman. There were out of six yogis, five were men and one was female. And that's why this was a male-dominated environment for a variety of historical and social reasons. And because of this, 
most of what is written in yoga is written in male language and it has to be translated accordingly for female conditions, life, body, anatomy, and so on. So he says the average body measures 96 angulas. The breath in natural condition, the word is used svabhava, like of its own, in its own natural pace, like the natural breath, relaxed, measures 12 angulas. Here, this is quoted, is a teaching which we give this particular two shlokas which follow. These are shlokas which we quote when we teach pranayama in the second level of agama because um, it's one of the very few texts of yoga where this teaching is given. As usually, Geranda, like many other yogis, doesn't seem to make big difference between um, what's happening in the physical body and in the energy body. And he simply tells you that your breath measures 12 finger breaths, like 24 centimeters. What does he mean with this? He means two things, and they are both true. He means if you take a mirror or a piece of glass and put it under your breath and you breathe on it naturally, your nostrils blowing down here, they will form a damp spot of condensation which shows that the air is coming wet and there on that surface. And then if you start moving this surface away and away, there comes a point where this damp spot disappears. If you bring it one centimeter closer, it reappears slightly. That's called the length of your breath, like how far your breath casts away. And obviously, if you get more agitated and you go like, your breath will go further. So that's why he says the relaxed breath, the average breath. Here comes the trick. The tantric yogis say, as far as the air goes in average position, that's as far as your prana moves through an energy channel which comes out of your nose or out of your nostrils, like two channels going like this. So your energy moves out of the nostrils also 12 angulas. And this point placed at 12 angulas out of your nose down and out of your nose, that is called the external dvadashanta. Dvadasha means 12. Anta means end. Dvadashanta means the end of the 12. What 12? Angulas or finger bread. So at the end of the 12 finger breads, there is a point of energy called Vadashanta. So this is a double thing. It expresses physically but it says, as it is physically, so it also is energetically. The energetic body and the physical body are synchronized. So in the pranic body, you also blow prana out like a whale blowing water. As it breathes, you are blowing this pranic thing. So it's here, the purpose is to tell us something else. But it says, the average body is 96 angulas, and for an average body, <clears throat> the breath is going like 12 angulas out. When singing, it becomes 16 angulas, which means you are breathing a bit stronger. So, more. When eating, 20. When I made a typo here. That's why I was looking like this. When sleeping, 30. In sexual union, 36, 
like heavy breathing as it's called and during intense physical exercise even more so it means when you are relaxed and then you are more agitated more agitated more agitated more agitated and the breath becomes longer which bring it means you are breathing more imperiously now here he comes with a conclusion because all this now is leading to a conclusion all this story with breathing and hamsa and all this now he wants to tell you why he told you all this and then to come to kevala kumbaka what is this kevala or kevali kumbaka he gives you a very simple rule which you should remember that's a basic principle he says in shloka 88 if the length of the breath is reduced below the natural average which is 12 so if your breath becomes more shallow life is increased or prolonged if you breathe less if the length is increased like if all the time you are running and singing the lifespan is reduced they say he ends by putting a very funny word there like it has been said this is what is rumored in yoga he says i don't have evidence this is tradition they say that if you breathe more intense and faster you live less and if you calm down your breath and you don't do drama in your life you are going to live longer some of you may remember the famous scene from the end of crouching tiger hidden dragon where the guy is poisoned and he knows very clearly he says i have six breaths to live but he says i can do this five breaths or six breaths in two hours i can hold slow down my breath he's an advanced practitioner and therefore i can resist until they bring me some remedy and then because he's dominated by his attachment and emotions he blurts out and he says the heck with my life i want to tell you how much i love you and blah blah and he breathes his six breaths and dies so therefore this is exactly it breathe less live more animals which breathe very quickly like the mouse they live one year two years three years animals which live slower which breathe slower than the human being like the elephant and others they live longer the slower you breathe the longer you live it's like some yogis even invented that every animal is born with 21,600 multiplied with i don't know how much 70 years 80 years of life you've got a million breaths in you when you finish them you die so if you like jogging and hiking up the kaura hill you're just going to die younger which in the language of yoga says you are going to waste your ojas if you make physical effort you are going to breathe more and you're but some people say but it makes me feel so alive yes but the price might be five years of your life so the question is do you want to sit on your ass quietly meditatively and not do too much motion and live a hundred years or you want to pump up your breath and die younger 
but feel alive for all those years while you are living. This theory, I cannot confirm it, and Geranda cannot confirm it. That's why he says, they say, it's being said. It sounds as a bit of a funny theory. It has some strange resonances, like it fits with some things which we see in daily life, but it has no absolute final proof. That's why we put it out there. And again, uh, we can, I can myself come up with some things where I can say, this sounds a bit batty. In this example, it doesn't seem to be like this or like that. So it, you have to see, like sometimes crows, some form some crows, and some turtles are living very long, long lives. Are the crows breathing more shallow and more seldom than a human being so that they live 200 years? I don't think so. But, and therefore, that's why I'm saying, please uh, take it with a pinch of salt. It's a funny thing. It's one of the urban legends or uh, the legends of yoga. So he says, anyway, what he believes in, he says, if the length of the breath is reduced below the natural average, life is increased. And if the length is increased, the lifespan is reduced, they say. 89. As long as prana stays in the body, death cannot win. Like this guy in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Hold your prana and you can stay alive for a long, long time. Some yogis were experimenting this by slowing down their breath slowing down the metabolism, getting buried under the ground for days, weeks, years, and going in suspended animation, and uh, pretending or claiming in this way that they could extend the lifespan and swallow their tongue and do kechari mudra and whatever, <coughs> and thus holding their breath they would extend their lifespan. So he says, as long as prana stays in the body, death cannot win. So you should keep the prana. When the prana leaves the body, of course, you are dead. And now he comes with the whole point. He made the point that we breathe. There is a mantra. This is life. You can place it in three parts of your body. And then if the breath is more calm and you are not puffing and huffing, then you are going to live longer because the whole point is to kind of calm down your breath. And then, but some people would say, Swami, this means for me to live in a trance, like the guy from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yes. And those who want to stay in Nirvana for 500 years, they might want to do that. That's why I'm saying this is not the street psychology. In the street psychology, people are restless and full of desires, and therefore they might not be ready for such radical things as that. But so he says, as long as prana stays in the body, death cannot win. Keeping the vayu, and this is again that slippery word for those who hear Garanda Samhita in my comments first time today. Keeping the vayu. Vayu is a funny word used in Ayurveda which means both wind, like air, but it also means prana, prana vayu, apana vayu. It means subtle energy in your channels. So it's, a, it's an ambiguous word, and it's ambiguous on purpose. So it has double entendre. So holding the vayu completely confined in the body, it means not breathing, holding your breath, like inhale and hold it. 
but it also means hold your energy in the body. Remember that this is how all these things started. Yeah? And so he says, holding the vayu completely confined in the body, he uses the word bandha, like you tie it in, like you lock it. Bandha means lock. So keeping the vayu completely locked in the body so that nothing goes out, this is Kevala Kumbhaka. Finally, now he came to the point in 89, he tells us this Kevala Kumbhaka, basically it means you should hold your breath and hold your breath and hold your breath and learn to hold your breath. This is like the people who do free diving. How many minutes can you hold your breath? Probably you don't know, but there are people who have reached around 10 minutes without yoga, or rather was using yoga exercises, but not being professional yogis. At the time when the grand bleu, the big blue, was done, the limit was somewhere around five to six minutes. But that limit has been pushed in modern sport by these people who do apnea training, apnea total and other organizations who do it for the purpose of diving and such things. So you go underwater and swim calmly with uniformous movement. How long can you hold your breath? And they have all sorts of trainings to show you how to surpass one minute, one minute and a half, which is the limit for normal people. So actually this can be pushed much more than you think. So he says this is Kevala Kumbhaka, to lock the breath, the air and the prana and to hold it. But he says comfortably. And that this, this is how he continues. All living beings, Shloka 90, all living beings are constantly and unconsciously repeating this Ajapa mantra. Doing Japa with the Ajapa mantra, Hamsa, Hamsa. He means going into this energy up and down for a fixed number of times, like 21,600 per day approximately. But yogins are blessed to do it consciously, count the numbers and apply Kevala Kumbhaka. If you do something like Vipassana and you go into the breath awareness, it slows down. You mark every breath, Hamsa, Hamsa. And thus it becomes slower, it becomes conscious, and sometimes you can simply block it. You just inhale, and for 20 seconds you don't go anywhere. Then instead in a minute of breathing 15 times, maybe in a minute you just breathe 10 times, or 8 times, or even less. Which means theoretically if you do the right diet and everything else, you could double your lifespan. So it's like you are breathing slower. That's the whole point. You spare on your breath. It's like you've got a fixed number of breaths for your life. So the yogis are blessed to do it. You bless it also because you go into a higher state of mind, as he is going to say it later. So the yogis are blessed to do this consciously, count the numbers, and apply kevali kumbhaka. He uses it kevali. He uses the feminine form here. In 90, he called it Kevala. In Sanskrit, in one shloka, it's called Kevala. In the next shloka, it's called Kevali, which again means it doesn't really matter. You just play with the words in feminine and masculine. <clears throat> 91. 
Anyone who aspires after emancipation, like if you want to go spiritually high, should do Kevali Kumbhaka. Like learn to slow down your breath, become aware of it, and hold it for prolonged durations of time. He says this produces emancipation, like going, progressing spiritually, going higher. And he gives a norm. He says by doubling the number of repetitions during the Kevali, the state of manomani or transcending the mind is attained. Manomani, it means manas unmana. And when you put them together is manomani, which means unmana means no mind, beyond the mind. Manas unmani. Your manas being going into no mind, being transcended. Manomani. And thus, the manomani is, he says, if you double the number of repetitions during the kevali, which simply means if you breathe two times slower. If you can come down to seven and a half breaths per minute in a regular way, you are going to start transcending the mind. I can tell you that when you slow it down, first thing which is going to happen to most of you is that you are going to fall asleep because you lose awareness. You are about to go in mano money and your mind cannot resist that and you black out. So instead of going in mano money, you go in jada. You black out and you go unconscious. In Sanskrit, that's called jada, jada. And uh, thus, he gives a measure. He say, if you just double it, if you'll go to an energy point where you are breathing twice as slow as the average, then you already start transcending the mind. It happens in Laya Yoga. Verify yourselves. 92. Draw air. Now he finally gives some technology. He says, draw air. And the word he uses, vayu, like draw prana as well. Draw air and prana. He uses this ambiguous, ambivalent word. In by both nostrils. And then perform a complete retention. Kevala, kumbhaka, kevala. Perfect, complete, tight, and kumbhaka, retention of the breath. So hold your breath. On the first day, retain the breath from 1 to 64 measures. Like he says, I don't know how much you can retain your breath. Wherever you are, it's somewhere between 1, like the most lousy practitioner can hold their breath 1, heartbeat one measure and the more advanced ones they can hold it 64 measures so hold your breath from 1 to 64 measures that's where you start wherever you are and then he says in 93 now it starts the long way to manomani to transcending the mind 93 this kevali should be performed eight times per day at every three hours these are the maniacs who live in ashrams. Every three hours they wake up and they do some kevala kumbhaka. Eight times per day. And if each one of these practices takes half an hour or one hour, means you are doing four to eight hours of pranayama per day, just kevala kumbhaka. You can't do that if you are working for shell oil, obviously. If you have an eight-hour job with commuting, Plus, if you are clubbing and going to the malls and so on, you will never do eight hours of Kevala Kumbhaka per day. So that's what it is in yoga. Some people are the pros who do it from morning till evening. 
and their life is yoga. Some people do half, some people do half of half, some people do half of half of half, and some people just read books and watch movies and do nothing. So there is a graduation in yoga depending on how much you are hot for it. So this kevali should be performed eight times per day at every three hours. One may also perform it five times per day, as I will explain below, like in the next shloka. And he does in 94. First in the early morning, then at noon, then in the evening, then at midnight. This is like every six hours. And last in the fourth quarter of the night. So he says you should wake up at four o'clock in the morning and do one more of this Kevala Kumbhakas, five times. Or one may do it even only three times per day, but of course more proportionally each time. At the moment of junction, he uses the Sanskrit word sandhi, like in grammar when you put sa and ham and it becomes soham, that's called sandhi. He says in the sandhi moments of the day, which means between day and night, which means at sunrise, between at noon when the sun is going from east to west and when the sun is going from morning to afternoon and at sunset when the day is going from day to darkness. These are the Sunday moments. So he say at least perform it morning, noon, sunset at every six hours, <coughs> three times per day. Sunrise, noon and sunset. 95. One must increase the number of ajapa repetitions, like how much time you say hamsa, from one to five measures every day until success is achieved. So he says if today you do it with one, tomorrow do it with two. The day after tomorrow do it with three. Rise slowly your retention and you are going to be able to go further than you think. So he says until success is achieved. 96. For the real yogin, Kevali is the essence of pranayama. He says, I explained a lot about pranayama, but the essence of pranayama is that you can hold your breath forever. Like, because if you can do that, it means you can live on prana and not on oxygen. And then you became a successful yogi in pranayama. That's a sort of a sign of success, how long you can hold it. Are you still at the level of physiology and pulmonary alveola or are you at the level of prana? So he says for the real yogin, Kevali is the essence of pranayama. You want to just do one thing in pranayama. Hold your breath for as long as possible, eight times per day, five times per day, three times per day, whatever it is. Do pranayama day in and day out, extending, holding your breath, that's it. So he says, by the perfection of Kevali Kumbhaka, what cannot be accomplished in this world? He used this kind of dramatic formula. Other times, those of you who heard me during Garanda Samhita, you heard this at least a couple of times before. Like he wants to say, what's greater than this? It's like, if you can do this, you can, I don't know, you can transmute lead into gold, you can walk on water, you can go in samadhi, you can do whatever you want. You know, it's like he says, by the perfection, perfection of Kevali Kumbhaka, what cannot be accomplished? And for accomplishment, he used the word Siddhi, which means spiritual perfection and paranormal abilities. It's another 
ambivalent double entendre word. He says, what can you accomplish? What is there that you could not accomplish spiritually or materially if you do Kevala Kumbhaka? Kevala Kumbhaka being like the essence. You feel that pranayama is too complicated? Boil it down to one thing. Kevala Kumbhaka. Do Kevala Kumbhaka and hold your breath for five minutes in every full retention. And you are going to see <coughs> miracles happening. And the text goes saying, thus ends the fifth lesson, because this was the last shloka and the last technique. Thus ends the fifth lesson of the Geranda Samhita in the dialogue between Geranda and Chanda called Pranayama Prayoga of the Gatashta Yoga. With this, we have finished the chapter number five, and we have around 40 shlokas left. Today, for example, I started from the shloka number 70-something, 78, and I went till the shloka 96. So about 20 shlokas I do per satsang. That's why there are two chapters of about 20 shlokas each. I expect that there are going to be two more satsangs of Geranda Samhita, unless I manage to go miraculously quickly over them next time. So one, two satsangs consecrated to Geranda Samhita. Next time, we'll start with chapter number six, which is called Dhyana Yoga. It's about meditation. What is Geranda's opinion about meditation? How to do meditation by the standards of Geranda? I had the text prepared, but I made many collateral comments. And since it's 10.30 and that's the hour promised for stopping, I don't want to surpass it. Um, so I will start with a new subject next time in our next satsang. With this, we have finished for tonight. Thank you all for joining. And we are going to continue with the final part of this text in the coming weeks. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.